Good morning. In just a moment, uh, we have uh, the fun and exciting moment of Zach baptizing uh, his son. But a word about baptism is always appropriate, especially when you live in a very Baptist place, right? And so to be a member here at Rockwell Press, we like to remind people that you don't have to necessarily believe in baptizing children. It might seem very foreign to you. Uh, we are a respecter of different positions, but we also like to remind people and challenge them that it's not necessarily as crazy to baptize a child as some people may perceive it to be or experience it to be if they haven't grown up in that tradition. And so to give you a little sense of why we're doing what we are doing, we uh, believe that baptism today is very much like circumcision in the Old Testament. Right? Someone who was born into Israel, a child, you know, Israel did not wait for that child to say, yes, I decide to be part of Israel or want to be part of Israel. Right? It was assumed that that child would be part of Israel and would be raised as part of Israel. That God's kindness is not only to the parents of the covenant, but to the children of those believing parents as well. And so we continue to give the sign, the sacrament of the covenant, the sacrament of inclusion into the body of Christ, to children of believing parents. This is one of the, you know, in one sense this helps us understand what Paul is saying, that the child of one believing parent may be made holy as a result of the faith of that parent. Also, when Acts, in Acts chapter 2, when Peter says, uh, as all of the Jews are gathered at Pentecost, he says, these promises are to you and to your children. It becomes hard to understand exactly what Peter means unless we continue to presume that God's grace is extended to the children of believing parents. Remember, the sacrament being applied to the children of believing parents was practiced for 2,000 years. And that it would be given up without any indication in the scriptures seems challenging, right? For the dietary laws to change, what has to happen? A revelation of God to Peter occurs to let him know that it is now okay to eat all things. Well, no such revelation occurred for baptism, and so we, like most of Christendom, right, continue to practice infant baptism. Right? And then again, please hear me. I'm not trying to beat up on anyone's theology, but in, a, in an Anabaptist stronghold, we're simply articulating why we're doing what we're doing. And so, reading from Colossians 2, where Paul actually likens baptism to circumcision, uh, Paul writes... For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. In him also you are circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. And indeed, for the faith of Melissa and Zach uh, today... As they engage the sacrament of baptism, we presume upon the grace of God that it is extended to Asher as well. So I will invite them to come forward for baptism. Just like we practice, pal. You say hi. Asher Lee Pummel. Baptize you in the name of the Father, in the name of the Son. In the name of the Holy Spirit, may Jesus be your only hope in life and in death. Please pray with me. Jesus, today we give you our son. We give back what you have so graciously given to us. 
you give us so many good things and yet we want to hoard them for ourselves. But might we give back what you've given most preciously to us for your glory. Pray for Asher that whatever story you have written for him, it would be one that is for your purposes and for your kingdom. I ask that he would find you in his pleasure and he would always find you in his pain. And you would always know that you are guiding him, that you have called him, and that you are good and gracious. That all the days of his life he would only ever have you as his greatest treasure, his greatest hope, his greatest joy, and his greatest delight. Fill him with your spirit. Use him for your purposes, and might he do great damage for your kingdom and have a passion for your glory. We pray this for Asher and for all of our children. We ask this in Christ's precious name. And everybody said, We're reading from 1 Kings 18. After many days, the word of the Lord came to Elijah in the third year, saying, Go, show yourself to Ahab, and I will send rain upon the earth. So Elijah went to show himself to Ahab. Now the famine was severe in Samaria. When Ahab saw Elijah, Ahab said to him, Is it you, you troubler of Israel? And he answered, I have not troubled Israel, but you have. And your father's house, because you have abandoned the commandments of the Lord and followed the balls. Now therefore send and gather all Israel to me at Mount Carmel, and the 450 prophets of Baal, and the 400 prophets of Asherah, who eat at Jezebel's table. So Ahab went to all the people of Israel, and gathered the prophets together at Mount Carmel. And Elijah came near to all the people and said, How long will you go limping between two different opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, then follow him. And the people did not answer him a word. Then Elijah said to the people, I, even I only am left a prophet of the Lord, but Baal's prophets are 450 men. Let two bulls be given to us, and let them choose one bull for themselves, and cut it in pieces, and lay it on the wood, and put no fire to it. And I will prepare the other bull, and lay it on the wood, and put no fire to it. And you call upon the name of your God, and I will call upon the name of the Lord. And the God who answers by fire, he is God. And all the people answered, it is well spoken. Then Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, choose for yourselves one bowl and prepare it first, for you are many, and call upon the name of your God, but put no fire to it. And they took the bowl that was given to them, and they prepared it, and called upon the name of Baal from morning until noon, saying, O oh, Baal, answer us. But there was no voice, and no one answered. And they limped around the altar that they had made. And at noon, Elijah mocked them, saying, Cry aloud, for he is a god. Either he is musing, or he is relieving himself, or he is on a journey, or perhaps he is asleep and must be woken. And they cried aloud and cut themselves after their custom with swords and lances until the blood gushed out upon them. And, then, and as midday passed, they raved on until the time of the offering of the oblation, but there was no voice, no one answered, no one paid attention. 
Then Elijah said to all the people, Come near to me. And all the people came near to him. And he repaired the altar of the Lord that had been thrown down. Elijah took twelve stones, according to the number of the tribes of the sons of Jacob, to whom the word of the Lord came, saying, Israel shall be your name. And with the stones he built an altar in the name of the Lord, and he made a trench about the altar as great as would contain two seahs of seed. And he put the wood in order and cut the bulls in pieces and laid it on the wood. And he said, Fill four jars with water and pour it on the burnt offering and on the wood. And he said, Do it a second time. And they did it a second time. And he said, Do it a third time. And they did it a third time. And the water ran around the altar and filled the trench also with water. And at the time of the offering of the oblation, Elijah the prophet came near and said, O Lord, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known this day that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant and that I have done all these things at your word. Answer me, O Lord, answer me, that this people may know that you, O Lord, are God and that you have turned their hearts back. Then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt offering and the wood and the stones and the dust and licked up the water that was in the trench. And all the people saw it. They fell on their faces and said, The Lord, He is God. The Lord, He is God. And Elijah said to Ahab, Go up, eat, and drink. For there is the sound of the rushing of rain. The word of the Lord. Good morning and welcome to Rockwell Prez. Uh, My name is Zach. I'm one of the pastors here. And if you're visiting with us or if you're new, uh, maybe you're looking for a new church home or it's been a while since you've been in church and you're thinking about getting back in. uh, We're glad you're here whatever it is that brings you here. And we hope that you feel welcome worshiping uh, with our church family. You actually are finding us in the second week of a new sermon series in the lives of Elijah and Elisha. We're coming up on some very strange stories in the scriptures. We're asking, what do they mean for us? How do these stories have any relevance to us over 2,000 and a half years later? Do they mean anything for us? Well, they certainly do. And they will mean the most to somebody that can actually, the person who will get the most out of this series will be somebody that can say one or two things. God feels distant. I have no idea where he's at. I'm confused. And I felt that way for a long time. Or a person that says, um, I feel stuck in a deep cycle of habitual sin. I feel stuck in a rut, spiritually, emotionally, and I don't know how to get out. I don't know what to do. I've tried over and over and over and again, and it doesn't work. And I'm thirsty. Maybe you can say both of those things. Maybe you can just say one of those things. But either way, if you do, you can immediately connect with our story because that is exactly the situation that Israel is in. This chapter today is a continuation of chapter 17 from two weeks ago. But we fast forward a little bit this week, three years later. 
Israel is in a deep, severe drought that it says in verse 2 that a severe drought has fallen upon the land that's caused a deep famine. The reason the drought has occurred is that God called Elisha to go and prophesy to Ahab that it's not going to rain until he says so for all these years. There won't even be dew on the ground. A devastating prophecy to an ancient culture, even to our modern culture. But what he's trying to do is he's trying to wake Israel up. He's trying to make them understand things that they're not, they're, that they're not seeing. That they've been asleep because they've fallen into this deep cycle of habitual idolatry because there's a new God in town. There's Baal brought in by king, the king of Israel, King Ahab, through a marriage with Jezebel. And so it kind of spreads like wildfire, these new stories, these new promises from a new God, that Baal is the God who rides on the heavens. Baal is the God who provides the rain. Baal is the God of the harvest. And so they begin to trust that Baal will be the God that will give us what we want. We'll put our trust in Baal, and Baal will make us the people that we long to be. And so by bringing drought, God attacks the very thing they put their trust in. He says, no, it is not Baal who brings the rain. It's me. It's me who brings the rain and who will bring the harvest and who will make you the people that you're called to be. But he brings that drought because he's telling Israel very clearly that the things you put your trust in don't work. They do not work. They don't work at all. So what do you normally do When you get thirsty and drought happens and things don't go your way, the things you kind of put your trust in stop working. They used to give you what you want, but then they don't give you that anymore. Or you have a difficult week, a difficult day, a difficult month, difficult year. What do you turn to? What do you look forward to? What is it that you crave that will satisfy your thirst? Because when drought happens, there's really only one of two responses. You either draw near to God and you embrace the drought, and you recognize that only he can satisfy you. Or you, pull, you double down and you draw away from God. You push him away, and you seek to satisfy yourself. Those are the one of two responses when we feel that drought. And two weeks ago, we looked at what it looks like through Elijah, through his life, to actually draw near to God whenever the drought happens. But today, as we continue that story, we get a picture of the other side of that coin, which is what happens whenever we double down. We continue to choose uh, what we think is best for us and what we think will satisfy us. But as we, if I could summarize the passage very briefly, as we jump in, I want to pose one of Elijah's questions. That after three years, Elijah comes out of hiding. He comes to King Ahab and he says it's going to rain. But before it does, I want you to gather all 400 prophets of Baal, uh, all 450 prophets of Baal, all 400 prophets of Asherah, and I want you to come and meet me on Mount Carmel, and we're going to have a showdown. We're going to settle this once and for all, who's God? And so all of the people of Israel gather, all the people of power, like you saw this week at the inauguration, a whole nation is gathered. All the people of privilege and power, the king, the prophets, the people. And it's Elijah against them. And he says, I'm going to give you a bull and I'm going to take a bull. And whichever, one of, whichever God answers by fire, he's the true God. And they say, great. So the prophets of Baal cry out over and over and over and again. They get nothing but silence. And then Elijah bows down. He offers a short, simple prayer. And fire comes down and consumes the bull, consumes the altar, and consumes the water that he drenched the bull in. And the people say, the Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. But right in the middle of that story, he asks them a question. 
He asks Israel a question. He tells them up on the mountain, he draws them close and he says, come near to me. And he says, how long will you go limping between two opinions? How long are you going to dance back and forth? If Yahweh's God, follow him. If Baal is God, follow him. It's that simple. Which way are you going to follow? And of course, we can look at that answer and we think, yeah, of course. Get him, Elijah. If Yahweh's God, follow him. If Baal's God, follow him. It is that simple. But we know it's not, is it, in reality. My, my grandfather was a World War II vet and uh, um, survived the war and had some incredible stories. One of the ones that he told was whenever he was in a particularly very vicious battle in Europe. And they fought for days and days and days. And after the battle was over, they actually were so divided, the allied forces were so divided that they just found their squad and another squad completely lost in the forest, and they had no idea how to get out. And so the two commanding officers that were with these two squads had two completely different opinions as to how they're going to get out of there. So they went back and forth, and finally they couldn't reach a consensus. And so finally the two commanding officers said, look, we don't know what else to do. We're both going to get up here. Each of us will tell you how we think it's best for us to get out. And then you can decide whichever one you want to follow, and you're free to go. We won't stop you. We don't know what else to do. And so both commanding officers got up there and explained how they best thought they should go, which path to take. And since I'm standing in front of you, you know how the story ends. But my grandfather took the right path. He got out. And they would later learn that all the soldiers that followed the other commanding officer were never heard from again. They don't know what happened to them. Radio silence. There are some decisions that you cannot have both ways. There are some decisions that you cannot choose two things. You must choose one. And who you worship is such a decision. And we know that tension. We know that it's not just as simple if Yahweh is God, follow him. If Baal is God, follow him. It's much more difficult than that. We may claim that it's that simple, but our lives tell a different story. Yes, Jesus, I want to know you and be intimate with you, but I'm not willing to work on any of my problems. I don't want to have to face any, any issues in my life. I don't want to face my past. I don't want to face my present. We say, Jesus, I want you to be generous to me, but I don't want to be generous in return. Jesus, I want you to draw me close to you and have a vibrant faith, but my free time is not negotiable. That's for me. And we know that waffling between two opinions. We know that limping. We know that dancing back and forth and wanting it both ways, and quite frankly, we cannot have it both ways. But as we consider this passage and this question, we have two images very simply today that give us a picture of what it looks like to go down the path that leads ultimately to silence and destruction. The first is King Ahab. The second is the prophets of Baal. We come across King Ahab three years later after the original prophecy about the drought. And the drought is severe, as verse 2 says. And just to summarize, it's not actually printed in your worship guide, just for sake of time. But he's with Obadiah, his servant. And he says, Obadiah, you go one way, and you search, and I'm going to go the other way, and I'm going to search, and I'm going to try and find some grass so that our livestock can stay alive, so that we can live. Hopefully we can find a piece of grass. Now, after three years of drought, it hadn't caused Ahab to change whatsoever or to examine his life. 
it hasn't caused him to reconsider anything. So here he has Elijah come and say, thus says the Lord, it is not going to rain, and then it doesn't rain for three years. We find him three years later just trying to survive, trying to get through. And I want you to see the ridicu- just how ridiculous this picture is. You have the king of Israel, one who is called to do great and extraordinary things. The king of Israel, dressed in his crown and dressed in his royal robes. The one who is called to lead the people of God to be a light to the nations and display the glory of God to the world, looking for a patch of grass to get by out in the desert. Looking for a patch of grass to stay alive and get through the day. He's doubled down. He's doubled down and he is determined to ride out this famine by searching for what he thinks is going to get him through it. And he never stops, he never pauses, he never thinks about what God might want for him. Ahab is the picture of the unexamined life that just continues to search for a patch of grass. And his existence, his whole life has come down to surviving, trying to get through the day, trying to stay alive instead of trying to find out how to truly live. He's looking for grass instead of looking for God. It's completely backwards. Now, it's easy to kind of look at that story. We look at King Ahab and, you know, we kind of can be hard on him, you know. We can say, yeah, you know what, after three years, you'd think he'd start to confess and repent and come to a census. But we need to connect with King Ahab for a second and ask him a lot more difficult questions. Because have you learned? Have we learned? King Ahab goes all these years and he doesn't ask the deeper questions and he doesn't learn and he continues to look for a patch of grass. And so... Even though it's hard to kind of beat him up, we have to ask our same thing. We have to ask the same questions to ourselves. Have you learned after all these years that pornography will not solve your loneliness problem? It will not give you any more control over your life than you want. Have you learned that alcohol is not going to deal one bit with that pain or anger that you feel? Or all of the compliments. All of the affirmation from everybody you possibly know will still not ever deal with your insecurity and will never give you that validation that you want. You could be the richest man on the planet and still feel like it utterly living in poverty. The lie of idolatry is that it comes in and it convinces us to settle for an existence that falls far short of what we were truly intended for. And we become completely okay with it. And in idolatry, when we begin to feel that thirst within us, that's when idolatry goes to work. That's when the engine gets revved up and it starts to go. When we feel powerless, when we feel insecure, when we feel disappointed, unloved, unwanted, we feel fear, anxiety, we feel like life is falling apart, we don't have control anymore. Whenever we feel frustrated, confused, angry, that's when idolatry begins to set in and it begins to sink its teeth within us. Because really, who wants to feel that way? Who wants to feel any of those things? Of course, when we feel it, we just want it to go away. We just want it to be numbed. We want it to be gone as quickly as possible. And so we, we set out on a search, looking for a patch of grass to get, to get us by. And so we look for that immediate gratification We look for something to take it away in the immediate. And we never really stop and ask ourselves the question, what am I doing and what am I really looking for? Is God speaking to me in my thirst? 
Is God speaking to me in all of these things that make me want more? That make me thirsty? But the truth is, we often find something to kind of get us through the day to help us get by. But the very nature of who we are and the very, our endless capacity for satisfaction and our desire for satisfaction will continue to make us want more and more and more of it. And when we begin to go down that path, we begin to believe the lies of idolatry. Because slowly what happens is we begin to believe the lie that our wants are now our needs. Recreation, things we enjoy become things that we require and have to have. Things that we hope for become things that we have to have. Things that we look forward to become things that we can't live without. They become a part of the new normal. But in the end, idolatry will just boil us down to a frantic and chaotic existence. Frantic and chaotic life that's just governed by the urgency of the present. We're just always looking for that next little patch of grass to get us by, get us through, and get us on. So it's easy for a hobby to slowly become an obsession because it allows us to escape the, the requests and responsibilities of a spouse or our family or our job. And it's all we look forward to and it's all we want. Or we always have the grass is greener mentality for so many different things. I mean, once I get a new house, once I get a new job, once I get a new car, once the school year is over, you know, once the summer gets here and the kids are out of school, then I'll be able to rest and life will slow down. And we all know that's a complete lie. It doesn't ever happen that way. But we always have something that we're looking forward to. Once I get to college, once I get married, once I have kids, now that I have kids, once the kids are out of the house, once I retire, we always have these images that we, are, we long for and this little patch of grass that we hope to get to. But the truth is, once we get there and once we actually experience it, we just realize that all, we're, all we are met with is new circumstances that start the cycle all over again. It's not as fulfilling as we wanted it to be, and it's not all that we hoped for, and so we start to look for something else to satisfy us. The cycle continues on and on and on, and we're never satisfied, and we're still thirsty. And we double down. And any time we actually might ask the question, you know, is there anything more than this? We quickly believe the lies of idolatry where it says, no, there isn't any more. This is what you need. This is the only thing that you can rely upon. This is the only thing that's there. It's the only thing that you can trust. This is who you are. And maybe you feel that this morning. The truth that idolatry convinces us to settle for a life that falls so far short of what we were intended for. You know, your life has become looking for that next bottle, looking for that next social engagement, that next vacation, that next checkpoint in your career, that next novel, that next TV show to watch that makes life okay for a while. But the truth is, you might feel that exhaustion. But one of the things the gospel tells us very clearly before we move on is that you are none of those things. You aren't your job. You aren't your parenting style. You aren't anything that you own. You aren't the opinion that others have of you. You were intended for something far greater 
And if you just consider the claims of the gospel for a second, that you, in Christ, are a co-heir, co-heir with Jesus himself, the creator, master, and Lord of the universe. So what belongs to him belongs to you, and what's true of him is true of you. You were created to be divine royalty. You were created to be the very royalty of God. Sons and daughters of the king. What purpose that is. But we so often don't want to believe that. It's very hard to believe that because sometimes we treat it like it's a fairy tale and it's far easier to believe the lies of idolatry. It's far easier to settle for a patch of grass than the glory that we were intended for. That's the first picture is that idolatry causes us or convinces us to live a life that falls so far short. And that's the sadness of it. The second picture we get from the prophets of Baal. The prophets of Baal take their turn, put the bull on the altar. All 450 of them begin to dance around the altar, crying out for Baal to worship or to, Baal to answer them with fire. They cry out for Baal to come and consume the bull on the altar. But then... Uh, They go all morning and nothing happens. And so Elijah gets up and he begins to mock them. And he says, where's your God at? Maybe your God's on a journey. And in one of the best passages of the entire scriptures, he says, maybe your God is going to the bathroom. Maybe your God can't hear you. Maybe you should cry louder. And so they cry louder and louder and louder. But then they start to really mean and they give it more and more and more. They start to cut themselves. They start to cut one another, and they just begin to bleed, crying out to Baal. So the point with this is very simple, that whatever your idol is, you have to hear that you're going to bleed for it. And you will make others bleed for it too. Others will have to fall in line with what you want. And it will slowly suck the life out of you. You cry out to it over and over and over again. But if there is any more stark verse in the scriptures, I don't know what it is, verse 29 when it says, but no, there was no voice. No one answered. No one paid attention. Idolatry will leave you bloody and deeply, deeply alone. It is a profound picture of idolatry. The way that we bleed for it. And there was never a moment where the prophets like looked around and said, what are we doing to each other? Why are we, we're destroying ourselves. Because that's what idolatry does, is it tells you that that's what's required to be satisfied. We don't want to pay attention to those questions. I read a story of a guy named Brian uh, in a book by a woman named Sharon Hurst. Brian's a workaholic, started his own business, and started to be successful. Couldn't stop working, worked 60 hours a week, worked all night and all day, and was hardly ever home. His wife would say, I want you to come home, please. I want you to come home. And the kids would say, why can't you stay? And he'd always, it just made him more mad and just made him want to work even more. And so he would be frustrated and he'd be angry. He's like, nobody appreciates me. Nobody understands how hard I work. Nobody values me which would cause him to work even more and more and more. Finally, his marriage just ended up getting so bad that he finally agreed to get some marriage counseling. He was going through the process, and it didn't really hit him how much damage he had done until he was home one night, 
and his son, his youngest son, he was putting to bed on the rare occasion that he was home in the evening. And he puts him down for bed, and his son says, Daddy, you're never here. And, you know, Brian's like, Son, we've talked about this. I'm providing for the family. Daddy has to work. And he says, No, that's not what I mean. He says, Even when you're home, you're always someplace else. You don't know me, and I don't know who you are. And in that moment, Brian realized how much he had bled for his idol. How much he had lost. How much of his life it had took away. But he also saw how much it made his son and his wife and his children bleed for it. How it gave them less life. And I make this point because I want to make it very clear to all of us that are parents. We have to be so aware of our idols. It's very important to be aware of our idols. Because why would we teach our children to pursue the same things we do when we ourselves are so unsatisfied by them? We are not raising children. We're raising worshipers. And we will either lead them down a path that will cause them to bleed, or we lead them down a path to life. We have to be aware of what it is that we are giving ourselves to. We have to be aware of what we're craving because it's not just your life on the line. So we look at this passage and we say, where's the hope? At this point, you're like, give me some Jesus, okay? Where do we go from here? Well, it's Elijah's turn. Elijah gets up and he douses the bull with water three times to make it very clear. There's no magic going on here. No trick of the eye. He douses it with water, and all he does is he prays. Bows down on his knee, doesn't cut himself, doesn't cry out, doesn't dance. He just comes and he asks. And when he does, the fire comes down and it destroys not just the bull, but the whole altar. A magnificent display of power, and the people cry out, The Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. Now, we often read a story like this, and we think to ourselves, well, that would be nice if fire came down out of the sky. Lord, I will turn away from my idols if you just blow up my fire pit tonight. If you just send fire. A miraculous sign. And we think that way all the time. But the truth is, this fire actually doesn't work. Israel will go back to their idols and they'll double down. Ahab will double down. And he will continue to search for grass and satisfy himself, and he will not ultimately turn to the Lord. But the truth is, we so often get caught up in this way of thinking, this kind of sign, this kind of economy. If you give me this, God, then I'll give you this. Lord, if you would just send this. Lord, if you would just do that. Lord, if you would just deal with this external circumstance, then I'll trust you. If you just would do this, then I'll believe in you. If you would just do this, then it would be so much easier to not have doubt and to have just a faith that just runs wild and a passion for your glory. But the problem with this is that it's just not true. The entire scriptures tell us that it doesn't work. Israel came out of slavery. They saw the Red Sea part and they were led by fire at night and they still longed for onions that Egypt offered instead of the promised land. Jesus in the New Testament said, I could blow up that whole town. When the disciples say, bring fire on them, they don't believe you. And he says, I could do that all day long, but it doesn't work. It doesn't 
work. And why is that? Well, one, it's the same thinking as is rooted in idolatry. When you go to God and you say, Lord, if you would just do this, if you would just do this, it's still what you think will satisfy you on your terms. And you're just dictating it to God, telling him what you need, what you want. But that's not what you need. And Jesus says, no, that fire isn't going to change anybody's heart. What you need is a better fire. In the New Testament, the second Elijah comes along, John the Baptist. And he says, there's one coming after me who will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. But this fire doesn't burn bulls. It doesn't consume bulls. It consumes something else altogether. When this fire comes, it begins to consume all of your desires for the things that destroy you. It begins to consume all of the things that you give yourself to that you know don't satisfy. All of the things that you give yourself to that give you less life and suck life right out of you. And those habitual sins that just you can't seem to let go of. It comes in and it consumes them. But it also begins to consume you with brand new desires, brand new hope, brand new joy, brand new purpose, brand new identity, a brand new reason for living and a whole new set of satisfactions. It's why Paul can say, you're a living sacrifice. You're one that is constantly being consumed by this fire, this invisible fire that can only come from Jesus himself. And it not only cuts away and it burns away the bad, but it purifies and brings the good to life. And it makes you something new all together. It's not a fire that consumes bulls. It's a fire that consumes you. That's what you want. That's what the deepest longing of your heart is, is to say, God, consume me. Consume me with the love and power and majesty and holiness that you have. Only there will I ever be satisfied and in nothing else. And Jesus is the one who makes that possible because apart from him, then we would be consumed unto death with his glory and magnificence. But he makes it possible that his power and might, might come upon us and bring us new life. So how do we access that? I'd like some of that. All we have to do is ask. So what Elijah does. He just gets on his knees and asks. He doesn't start beating himself up. He doesn't make a deal. He doesn't start cutting himself. He just simply sits down on his knees and asks God and waits for him to send it. Waits for him to send that kind of fire. And you know what? That's not a, a new lesson in the New Testament. Jesus says the same thing. Ask for it. Ask. Because there's another mountain where Jesus actually draws everybody up and he says, I want you to come close. And he also says, there's two paths in front of you. There's a wide path that leads to destruction and there's a narrow path that leads to life. But he couples that teaching with an invitation. He says, ask, knock, and seek, and it will be, it will be open to you. Ask and it shall be given to you. You have a heavenly father that knows how to give good gifts. If a bad father can give good gifts to his children, how much more so your heavenly father that loves you more than you could possibly comprehend. Ask for it. Ask for that kind of fire to come. But the truth is, it's really hard to ask. And I think the reason why, we, we, I think the reason why so few people, that's, that experience is very rare, is because we are so unwilling to ask. Because we are so unwilling to wait. 
We are so unwilling to wait because in idolatry, we are so trained to seek immediate gratification that we just want to do it on our own terms. The idea of waiting sounds terrible. We can't even wait at a stoplight without getting out our phone, yet alone wait for God. And yet it's in waiting that precisely is where that new fire begins to go to work. And so I would put it to you this morning, here's how you know you have an idol. If you're unwilling to wait on the Lord. Because you are trusting in something else. But it's in waiting where you begin to say, I'm not going to satisfy myself anymore because it hasn't worked. I'm going to let go of those things that don't satisfy. And Jesus, I'm going to give you all that I have. All that I have is my desire and my thirst. And I'm going to wait on you. And that's so hard because it's so easy to turn to something that's predictable, that's something that we can see, that's something we know exactly what it gives us something that's predictable and easy, and it's hard to wait. But yet it's in waiting that the life that we bleed away is actually slowly restored to us. And that invisible fire begins to make us something new and give us a whole new set of desires. But the requirement is to wait and to ask. In closing, I told you a story two weeks ago of a guy who was middle-aged, life's falling apart, started drinking, couldn't stop sitting in the counseling office and they got to a point where he said, I'm so afraid to actually give up alcohol because I don't know what life is like apart from it anymore. It's become so a part of who I am, I don't really know what life would be like without it. And I feel threatened at the very thought of it being taken away. But there's more to that story that he recounts how difficult it was to let go of that thing, to let go of that and to stop drinking how hard it was to wait to be satisfied with a new desire and a new craving. But then one day he woke up and he called his wife and he said, you know what? Today I am so glad that I started down this road and I'm not drinking anymore. And he said, I am learning to love being your husband again. He tasted that invisible fire. There's two paths before you. One makes you bleed and you'll end in, it'll end in silence. The other one is paved with another's blood. And it leads to something that is a whole new life entirely. But you've got to ask, you've got to knock, you've got to seek, and you've got to be willing to wait. But the good news that Elijah had for Ahab is the same good news that you have and can hear today. That if you're willing to wait, then you will hear the sound of rushing rain. And you will no longer thirst and you will be satisfied. You're willing to knock and ask and seek. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you for this story. I really don't like thinking about the things that I idolize. It's not easy. But we thank you for these stories that try to wake us up. It's amazing how the years can go by we just continue in what we always do. But we ask today that we, I ask this morning as we leave, that we would begin to have those new desires. That we would not settle for a simple existence, but we would understand the great purposes that you have called us to. 
To be even considered as a co-heir with Jesus Christ is a profound privilege that is beyond our comprehension. And it will take eternity to learn how beautiful and wonderful that truly is. Give us a glimpse of what you've called us to. Help us to bring you the one thing that we have, which is just our longing and our need and our desire. And then we ask that you would release our white-knuckled grip on our idols. And you would take our hands off those things and you would place them on you. And you would draw us near. And you would satisfy us. We ask that we would pray the brave prayer that Lord Jesus come and consume us. We ask all these things in your precious name. And everybody said, Amen. Amen.